Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, university librarian Howard Nicholson talks about the history of the public library and some of the challenges they currently face. I want to make two short announcements before I start. Firstly, I have to advise you that this lecture is being recorded. So if we have questions and answers at the end, you uh, might like to bear that in mind. (laughs) Secondly, I want to start by saying that if I express any views in this lecture, they are necessarily my own and not my employers, not the University of Bath's views necessarily. Now, before everybody goes to sleep, I want to do a bit of audience participation. If you have a current public library card, and if you visited the public library, your public library, in the last year, could you put your hand up, please? That is the vast majority of people in the room. Now, obviously, it's a self-selecting audience, but... I'm going to come back to that point later in the lecture. Most of my professional career has been spent in university libraries, so it's somewhat of a pleasure for me tonight to talk to you about a completely different sector, the public library. A bit of personal introduction. I did work in public libraries for the first year of my my working life. I was working in Peckham Hill Street Library in South London, on the counter as a library assistant. Um, We have a picture of that one. Now, when I worked there, (laughs) it was a tin hut on a bomb site. And sadly now, this new Peckham Library is better known as the place where Damiola Taylor was studying to improve himself shortly before his tragic and senseless death at the hands of a street gang. But this building had only opened shortly before Damiola's tragedy, and it was one of the Beacon public library sites of the 1990s. Damiola's use of this library and this new facility was completely in keeping with the ethos from the golden age of the public library, broadly the period from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century when public library services were central to self-help and autodidacticism. There are countless individuals from this period who, reflecting in their autobiographies, have said how much of their education they owed to the use of public libraries. Muriel Spark, Alan Bennett, the Yorkshire playwright. I want to just give you a brief quote from a slightly less well-known example But he's especially interesting because it's Lord Frederick Dainton, the man who in the 1970s chaired the commission that set up the British Library, the National Library. Speaking of his fairly impoverished upbringing in Sheffield and the inadequacy of his school in the 1920s, he said in his autobiography, Doubts and Certainties, I therefore cut my lessons and instead went along to my temple of knowledge, the public reference library in Surrey Street, where I came across two books that made me determined to go to Oxford and read chemistry. He was, of course, a famous scientist before he became university vice-chancellor, head of the university grants committee, and one of the great and the good. In this lecture, I'd like to outline the history of the British Public Library, look at how they stand today and some of the challenges and quandaries they face, and finally speculate a little about what role they may have in the future. Let's go right back to the beginning. Conventionally, library history is taken to have started in antiquity with the Great Library of Alexandria which equally is well known, rather inauspiciously, for being burnt down in the first century AD. Uh, I don't know if anybody here in the audience was present when Father Daniel Rees from Downside Abbey gave a gulp lecture. It would have been certainly eight years ago, I think. Um, 
the key point that Father Daniel made when speaking of monastery libraries was that until the invention of printing, books were primarily for communal reading. And the average monastery library was very small. You'd have a few manuscript volumes which were treasured and safely locked away. And Father Daniel pointed out that there was very rarely a library room. They were usually locked away in a small chest, often in the cloister. We've got a picture of a typical sort of medieval uh, cloister library chest. This is actually the one which was preserved at Kew, in which the Doomsday Book was kept for about 400 years. But uh, it's, it's the best I could find for this. So it's only with the invention of printing and the growth of the book trade that public access to reading materials becomes really feasible. By the late medieval period, libraries were well established at Oxford and Cambridge universities. And by the time of Sir Thomas Bodley's bequest to the Bodleian at the end of the 16th century, these were the most significant book collections in England, running into tens of thousands of printed volumes. And it was partly in reaction to these two great university collections that the Manchester textile merchant, Humphrey Chetham, I'm never sure whether it's Chetham or Cheetham, but Chetham is how I'm going to pronounce it. Humphrey Chetham founded Chetham's Library in 1653, you might have recognised Chetham's from the publicity brochure, which is in front of you now on the, on the desk, the little thumbnail portrait. Chetham's is generally accepted as the first library in the English-speaking world to open its doors to the public. In Chetham's own words, requiring nothing of any man that cometh. Now, whilst he clearly wasn't thinking about women using the collection, his phrasing can be taken to mean no charge, no qualifications or criteria to qualify to come in, other than that of being a bona fide scholar. I think these can be taken as the defining characteristics of a public library, whether funded by philanthropy, as Chetham's was, or by the state, as, or local taxpayers actually, as happened with British public libraries from the mid-19th century onwards. His uh, two-view of Chetham's library. Uh, this is the fantastic array of bookshelves down one long wall, and uh, We've got an interior view with that array on the left and the sort of book presses on the right with the reading desks inside. Now, Chatham established his school and library in turbulent and puritanical times. Um, Cromwell was governing the country and leisure reading, I don't think, was particularly high on anybody's agenda. But from the start, Chatham's was a charitable foundation with 24 fifis or trustees and its doors have now been open to the public for over 350 years. As many of you will know, it, it, it is still open and still serving. Um, there's something else to say about Chetham's as well, which is that until that time, if public had access to libraries, it was usually for religious, philosophical or clerical purposes. They were, any, any libraries at that time were primarily focused on religious uh, matters. Chetham's is peculiar and unique at that time in that from the very start it also collected in the wider areas of history, law, travel from the start, which did set it apart from other uh, library foundations of the period. Chetham's model for charitable support was not the only one to develop in the early period. Um, there are subscription libraries and later commercial circulating libraries where the user pays one way or another. I can't resist here actually um, citing Belfast Linen Hall Library. It can't be classed as a public library in the sense Chetham's is. Um, the Linen Hall Library was, and still is, a subscription library. 
Uh, we've got a picture of that one. Here we are. Yes, just the perspective is off from here. <laughs> um, the Linen Hall Library was born of the revolutionary enlightenment of the late 18th century. I don't actually have a note of the actual year of founding. But of course it was the age of American and French revolutions and people's liberty. And here it is today, still on the streets of Belfast. And the reason I was looking at it was because I think there's a slight irony in that it's sandwiched between the cooperative bank and a branch of Morton Brown luxury bath products, which, um, given, the, um, given what I'm going to tell you about the people who founded it, um, is, is, is quite, quite amusing to me. The, their own historical notes about their library say, delightfully, the library was founded as the Belfast Reading Society in 1788. I have got the year, 1788 by, as alternative versions have it, the worthy plebeians of Belfast or the sans-culotte of the town. <laughs> so clearly they were identifying the people there as fairly radical at that point. The uh, sans-culotte characterization seems to be borne out by the fact that its second chief librarian, Thomas Russell, was arrested in the library in 1796 as a follower of Wolfe Tone, the Irish revolutionary. He was later executed as a traitor for supporting Robert Emmett's ill-fated Irish uprising in 1803. It was one of those occasions where he and a dozen other unfortunate individuals in Belfast rose up to find themselves alone, isolated and surrounded. Um, a very, a very uh, unfortunate uprising. Somewhat less dramatic in our lead-up to the true age of the British Public Library were a number of other crucial influencing factors. Um, I don't really have time or the scholarly knowledge to examine these in detail, but I have to make mention of, and I will speak about, the Mechanics Institutes and their programmes of learning and study, the Chartist movement and the establishment of Chartist reading rooms, and these against a background of education reforms, education reform bills, greatly increased levels of public literacy, and the utilitarian philosophy of Jeremy Bentham and its influence on the thinking of civic authorities and public benefactors. But before I go into several of these antecedents, I'd like to say something about the price and affordability of books. Now, we're taking 1850 as the benchmark point here. The tables that I used suggest that in 1850, the average labourer earned less than a pound a week. Bear in mind the old currency of 20 shillings to the pound. That would be 17 shillings or so in 1850 whilst the average skilled man, or operative in industrial revolution speak, earned something approaching a pound and five old shillings, or a pound and 25p in today's money. The classic commercial publication model for the novels in the first half of the 19th century was the so-called triple-decker. This would be a good three-volume read, each volume two to three hundred pages, at ten shillings a volume, typically. If you just think about that, that's more than half a week's wages for a third of the story. The commercial circulating librarians liked triple-deckers because they could charge for each volume lent. But they're clearly unaffordable for the working classes who had to struggle each week out of their 17 shillings or whatever to pay the rent, to buy life's essentials, food, coal, candles. They would have to pay three pennies a week, probably, for a friendly society contribution, the equivalent of their insurance. The publishers did 
bring down, increasingly brought down, prices and published cheapers editions in an attempt to make literature affordable to the wider reading masses. And so you begin to get more publication in smaller volumes. And they were assisted by this by improvements in printing, such as steam presses and the stereotype plate, stereotype printing. And even so, I've got a, a shot of a Macmillan catalogue. I don't know how legible that is to you there, but actually this volume I'm holding up is the one in the top left-hand corner of that double-page spread, the poems of Arthur Hugh Clough. Even so, and this is a mid-century publication, this small volume costs six shillings, as you can see from the catalogue, if you can read it. Now, if you actually do a crude comparison with today's average unskilled weekly wage of around £300, that means the proportional cost, as I work it out, I'm not the world's best mathematician, but as I work it out, the proportional cost of this book in today's value would be something of the order of £90. My point is that basically the raison d'etre of the early free public libraries was to provide something which simply the poor couldn't afford. And that, of course, is true also of Mechanics Institute libraries and Chartist reading rooms. Looking then at the Mechanics Institute's libraries, they were started in Scotland in the 1820s by George Birkbeck, he who Birkbeck College in the University of London was named after. They spread to England very soon after, and by 1850 there were over 700 mechanics institutes nationwide. We've got a picture of a local example, a building that still stands, just, in Swindon. Swindon Mechanics Institutes. Very soon, the Mechanics Institutes had all developed reading rooms providing a service for their working-class clientele. Now, these were not free. The buildings were usually endowed, or not so much endowed as paid for, by industrialists and employers. But there was actually a subscription to use Mechanics Institute libraries, but they were very affordable. It would be of the order of a penny a week in the poorest areas or threepence a week in the, in the areas where you had richer, skilled people. That was affordable. They were progressive in other interesting ways as well. Mechanics Institute's libraries were generally the first to install gaslighting, allowing evening and nighttime studying Think of the clientele, think of the situation. That's a very natural new technology for them. Um, going back to George Birkbeck and Birkbeck College, in Nocte Concilium, roughly translate to learning in the night, is Birkbeck's motto, and that's the motto of Birkbeck College. After 1850, many of the 700 mechanics institutes did actually morph into civic public libraries. This didn't happen in Swindon. Um, the Towns Institute continued to offer its library service alongside the public one until as late as 1961, I discovered. I don't know if anybody in the audience has experience or knowledge of that, but that was a surprising survival to 1961. Similarly, Chartists across the country established Chartist reading rooms from the 1830s onwards. These also, I believe these were free, were also more attractive to the working classes than the alternatives of subscription or fee-collecting circulating libraries. I, I couldn't find an illustration of a Chartist reading room uh, to show you. I'm sorry for that. All this mass reading caused a sort of reaction in the upper classes, which was um, fairly typical of the mid-Victorian mind. It was at two extremes. You had the kind of agonies exemplified in Matthew Arnold's Culture and Anarchy, and 
the upper classes were either terrified that a little knowledge would turn the masses all into violent revolutionaries, or they genuinely believed that education and enlightenment was the only way to prevent that. A good example is Francis Place, um, the radical reforming politician of the time, the, the so-called Taylor of, of oh no, Taylor of Charing Cross, that's it, the radical Taylor of Charing Cross. And he argued that reading would civilise the radical poor and turn them away from the mob. In his autobiography, speaking of the London Corresponding Society, he wrote in the 1830s, reading societies promoted an increase in moral conduct and assisted mainly in improving the great body of the people. Their leading men were none of them anarchists, none of them hot-headed revolutionists, but sedate men who sought the changes they wished by degrees and not more rapidly than an instructed people could bear them. So this view from place, typified by his quotation there, it began to, it's sort of, sort of Fabianization, it began to infiltrate and be adopted by many politicians, especially those of the utilitarian view. And by the 1850s, you have a sort of watershed, a groundswell, of the growth of that view and a move towards a more enlightened approach. The 1850 Public Libraries Act, the first Public Libraries Act, started... It was passed in 1850, obviously, yes, sorry, that one, <laughs> and sounded the start of the golden age. Um, it's important to notice that this first Public Libraries Act gave local authorities a right to levy taxes to fund public reading at a halfpenny in the pound rate. It didn't require them to. So it was still down to the local population to decide whether to or not. The obligation on local authorities only comes with the 20th century, with the 1964 Public Libraries and Museums Act, which places a statutory obligation on local authorities to, and this is a quote, provide a comprehensive and efficient public library service for all persons in the area that want to make use of it and to lend books and other printed material free of charge for those who live, work or study in the area. This is a very much cited piece of legislation. But it reflects a completely different approach from that of the earlier public library legislation. It's centralist, it's dirigist in a way that the first public library acts weren't. The 1850 act was very strongly opposed by many conservative politicians of the day. And it was even more constrained. Not only did you have to agree you were going to put it to the people, but it required a referendum, and then it required a majority support of 66% of those for the local tax to approve it. The 1850 Act itself was following a trail blazed by the Museums Act of 1845, which had similarly established the principle of publicly funded museums. It's interesting that the museums came first. Again, as with the Mechanics Institutes, Scotland led the way, on both the museums and the libraries with a penny in the pound tax, whilst England was still capped at a halfpenny. A few of the museums established between 1845 and 1850 did offer reading rooms, but generally it's accepted that the first tax-funded, purpose-designed public library was the Campfield Library in Manchester, and we have a, a picture of that. I'm sorry for the quality of this um, particular slide. I, I couldn't get it any better. The Campfield Manchester Library was opened in 1852 with Charles Dickens speaking at the opening. 
and with William Makepeace Thackeray present amongst others in the audience. This was a forerunner of Manchester Central Library, one of the truly great Victorian city libraries. Um, there's a sketch of the interior which gives you a slightly different feel for the place. The operatives and the lower classes of Manchester are clearly present en masse in the uh, newspaper reading room here. Um, this really highlights how the politer classes might have feared this mass, uh, not just snobbery, fear of contagion and so forth. You, you have the uh, queen and her consort looking down, if you can see that, from the wall uh, as guardians of the, of the reading room and the masses. But uh, despite this, there's something really quite subversive about the stance of that young man who isn't reading and uh, leaning against that column in the centre there. Um, it's quite easy to see from a sketch like this to get a feel that the class system that supported commercial circulating libraries down to the Second World War alongside the earliest public libraries, you can see why it survived for, for, for so long. Although kick-started by the 1850 legislation, the expansion of public libraries in Britain was slow at first. It isn't surprising, really, given what I've said about the need for agreement to taxation and so forth. But from the last quarter of the 19th century, there was a very large amount of philanthropy going into public libraries. The names of the philanthropists live on. People still talk about Carnegie Libraries, Passmore Redwood Libraries, and the names actually evoke a sort of architectural style, red brick or neoclassical by their class. Andrew Carnegie was the great Scottish-American steel magnate. He paid, this is really quite impressive, he paid for 2,300 public libraries worldwide. And of those 2,300, 660 were in Britain. <laughs> Here's a classic Carnegie Library. It's the library at Kendall. It's from around the turn of the century because it replaced the 1855 original, which obviously wasn't a Carnegie Library. Another library benefactor was John Passmore Edwards. He was a press baron of his day, and he benefacted by bequest 24 public libraries in Britain. And this is where I come into the story again. I, very, I worked very briefly in the 1960s, again in that first year in public librarianship, in this one, which is Dulwich, Dulwich Library in South London. I'm a South London boy. A third benefactor was Henry Tate. Think Tate and Lyle. He supported a number of libraries in London, in the London area in the 1890s. He's perhaps, of course, more famous for the foundation of the Tate Gallery and his benefaction to that. But he also was a, a, a founder of libraries. And there were a host of other local philanthropists who in the late Victorian period supported public libraries. And the public good of reading just came to be universally accepted by 1900. And... In 1900, an extraordinary piece of uh, legislation was passed, the Net Book Agreement. This is a little bit uh, obscure, but the Net Book Agreement in 1900 gave libraries... It, basically, the Net Book Agreement is a trade cartel. It's a trade cartel arrangement to fix minimum prices for books. And what it did was it guaranteed libraries a 10% discount on British book prices so long as they allowed public access. This was acceptable as a piece of legislation because it subsidised the publishers to produce the works of non-established authors and secondly, as I say, because it allowed libraries to purchase a discounted rate. Now the net book agreement collapsed in the 1990s and it collapsed when the big bookshop chains like Dillon's and Waterstone started discounting prices, and they were spurred by the threat of competition from supermarkets and the arrival of big US-owned high street stores like Borders. 
That's getting a little bit ahead of myself chronologically, but the netbook agreement collapsed. It was basically, um, it just fell into disuse by, by, by passive action by the trade. In broad terms then, public libraries until the 1960s and the age of affluence had existed to provide access to resources that the majority of their users could not afford for themselves. And the 1964 Public Libraries and Museums Act recognises this as a sort of culmination of this rationale. But it's ironic also that from the 1960s, the challenges to that raison d'etre of public libraries begin to be truly noticeable. Wages, wages had been increasing and book prices had been falling steadily. But in the from the 1960s, books are incredibly more, more, more affordable, paperbacks especially, and of course, also, of course, you've got changes in media and entertainment which impact on reading time, especially television. <laughs> There's a great debate about whether television actually competed with libraries and reading or whether it actually engendered more reading through serialization of, of classics and so forth. But the costs, meanwhile, are rising, staff costs especially. 70s, the 1970s, the 1980s, the staff costs are going up. And the local authorities are having more and more trouble paying for their library services. And so s s public librarians and uh, sharp council administrators begin to jump on the wording of the 1964 Act and realised that they could charge for anything which offered added value in the terminology of the day, beyond the required free book lending service. So, they introduced new services such as record libraries and video libraries later, and sometimes they charged for their use. Not always, but sometimes they were charged. Which was fine for the newly affluent, but it could have been argued to be the thin end of the wedge as far as the public library ethos of the earlier period was concerned. Changes in publishing also become a factor in the 1980s and the 1990s, with a move away from the traditional hardback launch of popular fiction, which of course a main customer for those was the public library chains on, 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 on approval, uh, and then stopped first in, in hardback, and the move was towards more trade paperbacks aimed at mass sales in the high street for new titles rather than at libraries. Publishers rediscovered the mass market for cheap paperbacks. They vied with each other to see who could publish the cheapest out-of-copyright classics. I don't know if, uh, if people remember the Penguin 60s series. It was um, 60 penny paperbacks, like this one here, to celebrate their 60 years. 60 pennies a copy. Uh, Wordsworth Classics. If anybody had any experience of Wordsworth Classics series, 400 titles out of copyright, classic works of literature, £1 a copy. 400 are still in print, still available on the net. It all sort of reached its momentary peak around 1996 in a sort of nightmare combination for the booksellers. Um, I remember this well myself. On supermarket shelves, you could find Kellogg's packets of cornflakes with a copy of a Len Dayton novel attached to the side of the packet of cornflakes. And it was just, you know, just complete. It, that must have horrified a lot of book trade people. But then... Now we're up to the wonderful age of the internet. And for a brief decade in the 1990s, it looked as if public libraries had found a new raison d'etre, completely in keeping with their original mission. Because if you remember, in about the mid-90s, a home computer would cost you more than a month's average wages. Only the richest 10% of households in the UK had home access to the internet in the mid-1990s. This presented a great opportunity to the public library system. And they realised it, and the government seized it as well. Tony Blair's government funded, publicly funded a national programme called the People's Network. Um, 
We've got some members of Yukon here in the audience, I know. Yukon was actually involved in this, um, and Yukon is, well, it's a trendy one-word name now, but actually it's a unit based at the University of Bath called the United Kingdom Office for Library and Information Networking, which gives you an essence of what Yukon is about. But Yukon was heavily involved and funded to do work to support the People's Network. And uh, there were projects like Stories from on the Web, which was developed by Yukon uh, in that time. Stories from the Web was designed to encourage children's reading on public library computers, well, and home computers, but uh, generally children's reading on computers, in around 1996. It's really satisfying to note that both these initiatives continue to this day and thrive. The People's Network is now a nationwide web service offering a portal to all public libraries and their services, supported by the lottery and at the moment by the Museums, Libraries and Archives Council. But that, unfortunately, the Museums, Libraries and Archives Council has been thrown on the bonfire of quangos. But here's a homepage, not very exciting, but a homepage from the People's Network, which is offering a nationwide service still now. Um, Stories from the Web is also still going. It, was, um, fulfill, it really does fulfill a useful purpose as a safe and child-suited website for younger readers. Um, it's run by Birmingham City Libraries. We've got this. There we are. That's a rather jazzy. This, is, this doesn't do it justice. All these bits move around, of course, and uh, the, the characters wave to you from the front and waggle their books around and do things. But Stories from the Web is still going. So for a decade, public libraries became a central part of the thrust uh, of the PC, Internet Revolution. But we've, since then, we've had the subsequent spread of home PCs, the reduction in costs of systems involved, and the development of mobile computing. And all of this has meant that this sort of major repurposing was fairly short-lived. Universally now, public libraries, almost universally, certainly the larger public libraries, all offer internet access as well as traditional book services. Though I understand that regrettably a few public libraries still charge for internet access. So really, my historical survey has now brought us to the current era. And now we come to the boring bit, the statistics. Can we have the statistics? Here we are. Around a billion pounds a year of taxpayers' money, ratepayers' money, still goes into supporting local authority libraries in the UK. There are 80 million in 4,000 4, libraries. And this is why I asked for that straw poll at the beginning of the lecture. The statistics show that 50% of the population currently hold a library card and visit their local public library at least once a year. And uh, certainly the straw poll from this room more than, more than bears that out. They make 280 million visits to the remaining 4,000 libraries, and they borrow some 283 million items, which of course can include CDs, DVDs, whatever now, the media is not so important. And that's roughly one item borrowed for each person's single visit, which is a very neat parallel. They answer 49 million queries, inquiries, in 2010, which seems low, but it just demonstrates how much the public library network operates on the basis, like a supermarket, of self-service. And they now contain 33,000 public computer workstations in them. And interestingly, the public library websites now generate about one virtual visit for each two walk-in users. There are several um, what I would call gee-whiz statistical comparisons which are made in defense of public libraries. Um, here, here, here's two. Nationally, the system costs less than five pence per person per day. Five pence out of your pocket to support the public library per day. And more people still visit public libraries than go to cinemas or football matches. These are sort of 
makes-you-think type statistics. Well, this is all very impressive. Now for the worst news. <coughs> In the 1990s, over 200 branch libraries were closed by councils across the nation. Perhaps even more damaging, opening hours were reduced in the remainders, often severely, and largely as a result of staff costs, they were at the times that are most valuable to the public, evenings and weekends. I, I like to make the comparison here with that other greatly loved public institution, post offices. As with post office branches, we're often given the management speak of a strategic driver. We are told that the strategy is centralised to larger branches using usually in larger centres of population, often in combination with, pub, with capital investment, building a large new attractive central facility, um, public finance initiatives in some cases in this new central facility. And of course the um, sceptic has to ask, well, as with the post office closures, how far is that a genuine strategic change and driver? Or how far are the strategic change drivers camouflage for the budgetary constraints or cuts? As we have seen, local authorities have a legal obligation to provide a comprehensive and free public service for their area. But this is just rhetoric unless somebody challenges that whether these local authorities are meeting the requirement or not. And in a number of cases, such challenges have been brought recently, usually by the local citizens' groups in combination with professional librarians' bodies like the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals or national lobby groups like the Libraries Campaign. One early success for the campaigners in 2009 was the Department of Culture, Media and Sports review of Wirral Metropolitan Council's plan to close 11 branch libraries. It always seems to be 11 branch libraries, I don't know why. Which found against the council and obliged them to drop the plan. But this victory was double-edged. It established that branch library closures could be achieved so long as they resulted from a strategic review and an assessment of the local needs, all of which, of course, could be arguable. More locally, and bang up to date, is the current controversy over Somerset County Council's plans to close 11 branch libraries again and a similar plan in Gloucestershire. Both of these two, that's Gloucestershire and Somerset, were launched with dressing with ideas about big society alternatives, returning the running of the branches, the smaller branches, to the community, staffed by community volunteers. Um, there's also ah, thank you, Lizzie, for putting that one up. I've forgotten about that one. <laughs> um, there's also the idea of private community libraries, and uh, this is sort of reaches its its its, its Apogee in this. This is an unused telephone box at Westbury Sub Mendip, where you have a private community library, nothing to do with the Public Library Authority, in a telephone box. Uh, reminds me a bit of the Anarchist Library in London in the 1960s, where it was all done on honesty, and you took along your things, took away what you wanted, and left something else instead. It probably would work in Westbury Sub Mendip. It certainly didn't work in the Anarchist Library. Somerset and Gloucestershire went to the High Court last November and the plans were ruled unlawful in the context of the 1964 Act. But again, there's equivocality in the outcomes. Somerset Council's overall strategy was acknowledged and it seems likely the closure of some of six of Somerset's libraries is still going to happen. And the outcome also seemed to give support to the principle that the other five of their branch libraries might be transferred to the voluntary sector after a year of preparing the ground. It's a bit of a judgment of Solomon, you might sardonically say, and both sides can claim success, of course. The council claims it vindicates their strategy, and the campaigners can claim a victory. The press also had a field day with this, 
The press has made much of the cost of the case, reputedly as much as £600,000, which it is claimed would have been enough to staff the 11 branch libraries closed, planned for closure for a further two years. As a quick stop press mention here, the Department of Culture, Media and Sports has launched its own inquiry nationwide into public library closures in England, and this will be chaired by John Whittingdale MP, and it's currently out for consultation. For the past two decades, whilst these closures and challenges have been happening, there's been a seriously equivocal public debate which could loosely be titled, Does Britain Still Need Public Libraries? Many literary, business and political celebrities have dabbled in this debate. Here's a, a list of them. Joan Bakewell, Tim Coates, Martha Lane Fox, Stephen Fry, Deborah Mockup, Michael Palin, he's a great supporter of libraries, Michael Rosen, Ed Vasey, Tim Waterstone, others I could go on. They contributed to the debate seem to fall broadly into two camps. Yes, but simply more attractive and with more books, or maybe no, but something completely different. Here's a short quote from an exponent of the first category, Tim Coates, Tim Coates, in 2010, and he writes, librarians listen to this with care, there are only three points, more books, longer hours, and lovely buildings. Somehow librarians seem to forget all three every time they try to tackle their problems. So basically, lift yourself up by your own bootstraps and do it. The something completely different approach is interesting and actually has been adopted by a number of local authorities who are prepared to invest in public libraries. But the starting point of these go-ahead authorities is that British public libraries currently have an image problem. The L word they see as being inherently unattractive to the communities that most need them. In the past decade, the London Borough of Tower Hamlets has developed a new brand, to use the marketing term. They call their libraries ideas stores. They are marketing libraries through the London Borough of Tower Hamlets as though they are retail outlets. And it has to be admitted they're prepared to put their money where their mouths are. This is a, a picture of Whitehall Ideas, White, sorry, Whitechapel, Whitechapel Ideas Store. They're doing 15 on this scale in Tower Hamlets, Bow and other places. They all have cafes, creches, computers, and business startup advice services. It's quite a long way from the high counter and bun hair image of the past, and it's tempting to say that they're closer to something like community centres than libraries. But importantly, they've also followed some of Tim Coates' advice. These libraries in Tower Hamlets are completely restocked with contemporary books the local people actually enjoy and find interesting, rather than historic and out-of-date collections. It's, it's a general truth that if you rebuild a library, local use will double as a result. That happened here when we rebuilt the library on campus. However, the performance indicators from Tower Hamlet's idea stores show a tripling of public use of the libraries within the borough, which is truly impressive. Some of us uh, crustier old librarians might cringe a little at the branch manager being given the job title Ideas Supervisor. <laughs> but generally, the library professionals have increasingly recognised the value of this kind of model and see the future of public libraries' survival as depending on re-engaging with the local community. Also, Tower Hamlets have been extremely innovative in funding this relaunch. They have cleverly drawn on grants as a deprived area, and they found powerful sponsors in Sainsbury's and Lloyd's Bank. And these are big players. Other major local authorities are also investing heavily. And time is running out, so I'm going to close with giving you a couple of pictures of what is actually currently Britain's largest current cultural project 
I'll repeat that, Britain's largest current cultural project. It's a scheme at Birmingham Central Library to rebuild Birmingham Library, which is a £193 million redevelopment. It looks truly inspiring. It's actually... Can you see it, the words R-E-P? Mm. This is integrated with culture and performing space. They're rebuilding the repertoire theatre. There's performance spaces. There's atria. They are looking at... They are looking at the cultural life of the city as a whole. Other funded... Oh, thank you. Yes, of course. That's, that's a shot of the interior, which looks truly impressive. And to comfort you all, has some books visible as well. Um, other funded initiatives to refocus public libraries in recent years have also begun to reflect people's needs. Um, with, there's massive interest now in family history research, and many public library authorities have actually brought together county archives and public library local history collections to meet that need. This, of course, is partly driven by television programmes as well, of course. Other local authorities have integrated local council advice and service centres into their libraries. And in some cases, you've, you've, you've even got community spaces, community council meeting rooms for community councils. Some have brought tourist information offices into them. I'm running out of time. You might reasonably ask me, what do I believe, then, is the future role of public libraries? I have to say, rather grimly, that it's hard to see a future for multiple small branch libraries and how it can be sustainable. There used to be a wonderful target of a mile, a library, be it a mobile or whatever, within a mile of everybody. I just don't see it's possible anymore. I think any money to achieve that could possibly be better spent on improving the network infrastructure to allow electronic remote access to library materials provided by a library authority, especially for rural areas. The state of the electronic um, internet accessibility in rural areas is very poor in this nation. For larger municipal libraries, though, given proper investment and planned as part of social and cultural hubs in tune with the needs of their local communities, I think public libraries have an exciting role to play in the fostering of enterprise and creativity, whether it's an economic role in providing free advice to businesses and supporting local economic development, or whether it's providing learning support for all kinds of learners, adult learners, continuing education, junior learners, or whether it's simply for providing space for social, intellectual, and cultural activities for the community. I think there is an exciting future there. It's very interesting that some public librarians and certainly some architects are now talking about the future of libraries as the living rooms of our cities. And all that visionary thought, I close. Thank you.